0: It is absolutely crucial that the Holy Spirit had, had to come down for us, for believers, for the church, for what God had planned in His story of redemption. What is, this, what is the significance of this event? Why should we as Christians consider it significant? Well, this is the question that we would be pursuing today. The title of today's sermon is Pentecost. What does it mean? Actually, the question... What does this mean comes from the very text of Scripture, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 1. Now, the story really goes to verse 41, but today we'll only read through verse 13. Acts 2, verses 1 through 41, but we're only reading until verse 13. And the word of the Lord for us this morning is the following. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues." Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Let's bar our heads and pray. Father, as we have heard an account of the coming of the Spirit 2,000 years ago on the church, Father, we pray that this account, these words that we have just heard, would speak to our hearts. I pray that you enable us to understand the magnitude, the significance, and the meaning of the coming of the Spirit upon your people. We pray, Father, these things in the name of Jesus and for His glory and honor. Amen. Pentecost. The account of Pentecost is often misunderstood by many. Baptists, Take the 3,000 baptisms. Pentecostals take the speaking in tongues. Now, even though each of these details are in the narrative, these are not the most appropriate primary applications of the text. To focus on such points of detail at the expense of the larger narrative of Scripture is to miss the point of the significance of Pentecost in the storyline of God's salvation so what does Pentecost mean what did this event mean Pentecost was a major Jewish festival prior to Christianity Uh, so major that the uh, Jewish historian Josephus says that during Pentecost uh, the this feast during this feast the population of Jerusalem would multiply as much as four times. This feast, this festival, was the second of the three major festivals in Israel, the first of which was uh, the Passover. The crucifixion of Christ happened on the Passover, which celebrated the exodus from slavery. And it was not coincidental that the death of Jesus uh, took place during this, this Passover time, during the Passover feast, because... Christ was the true Lamb of God. He was the Passover Lamb. Well, in a similar way, the pouring of the Spirit happened on a very important event in the life of Israel. But what is the significance of this feast for the giving of the Spirit? Why is God, why has God poured out the Spirit on this feast? Prior to the giving of the Spirit, Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks. It was, um, it was really an agricultural feast. It was uh, an agricultural feast that was marking the end of the grain harvest. Now, its name uh, signified that it concluded a period of about seven weeks, which was 49 days, so that the next day, The 50th day in in, in Greek was Pentecost. Pentecost literally means the 50th day. And on this day, it it was the celebration of this Feast of Weeks, the Feast of the Harvest. But more specifically, when people celebrated this feast, what they would do is they would be presenting to the Lord an offering from their new grain. An offering from their new harvest. And it was a day when the Jews would bring to the Lord the first fruits of their harvest. That's why this Feast of Weeks, this day of Pentecost, was also called the Day of First Fruits. Exodus 34, verses 22. God gives this command through Moses to the people of Israel. And He says the following... You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. That's what Pentecost meant prior to the coming of the Spirit. Now, it is on the occasion of this feast that God sends His Spirit. What does it mean that God poured out His Spirit on the same occasion when Jews would present their first, fe- first fruits to God? Is it important? I think it is absolutely important. And if if this feast of Pentecost was a time when every Jew, every Jewish person in the whole world would come together to present to God their first fruits of the harvest, on this particular Pentecost, God decided to present His first fruits of His harvest through the pouring of the Holy Spirit. And how that is actually played out, we will see by exploring the details of the story, the details of the event. But the big idea about Pentecost is that the giving of the Spirit is a picture that now no longer human beings are called, are asked to present their first fruits to God, but now God is presenting His first fruits to mankind. If there's nothing you take away from this sermon this morning about what is Pentecost, what does it mean? Is this in the coming of the Spirit, God is presenting His first fruits to mankind. Now, in the New Testament, the notion of first fruits had had several values, had several meanings. First of all, the notion of first fruit was actually applied to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. But the notion of first fruit is also applied to the Spirit. Although using a different vocabulary, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about the Spirit, describes the Spirit as a down payment. As the first experience we have here and now of that which comes. In fullness in the future. But there is a third dimension, a third way in which the notion of first fruits is applied in the New Testament, not only to Christ, but to the Spirit as well. Thirdly, the notion of first fruits is also applied to believers. Romans 8:23, Paul says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, how do these Notions of first fruits correlate. Christ, the first fruit, the Spirit as a type of first fruit, as down payment, and believers as first fruit. How do these notions correlate? Well, we have to understand the story of God's redemption. Jesus was historically the first fruit of God's redemptive story. Jesus is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. But He ascended to heaven. And yet before the ascension, He promised that I will send you another comforter. The Father will send you another comforter. So even though this, the good Jesus, the first fruit of God's harvest, has ascended to heaven, in the coming of the Spirit, the Spirit brings to us all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. In other words... Think of it this way. Through the Spirit, the benefits of Christ become ours so that we ourselves might become the first fruits of God's creation. The only reason why we can experience God's fruits, first fruits in our lives, that the only reason why Scripture can call us as the first fruits of God's creation is because the Holy Spirit is applying to us all the benefits of the death and resurrection of Christ. James 1.18 says the apostle says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, my friend, Pentecost is a threshold in God's storyline of redemption Because it marks the beginning of a new era. It's the era of first fruits. Not only Christ being the first fruit, but it's the the threshold when the benefits of Christ, Christ being the first fruit, is now applied to us through the Holy Spirit. And it's only because of the coming of the Spirit that we can become God's first fruits. Now, we are not an agrarian society. So for us, the notion of first fruits might not mean much. Now, those of you who grew up on a farm who may still do some farming may, may have a better idea of what this means, but for most of us who have grown in a city who have not been blessed uh, to see the life of, of the country, the life of an agrarian society, we don't know what this really means. So for us, the equivalent of this experience in our modern day language would be something like Like a food sample that you pick up at Costco, it gives you a taste of the full meal. It's just a little thing in a toothpick. You pick it up, and it gives you a taste of what's in the package if you were to buy it in full. It is like like a teaser or a movie trailer that gives you a preview of the next great movie that's coming out. Now, speaking positively, this is great news for us, for Christians, because God is bringing the future into the present. First fruits of the harvest means there's more to come, and the future is glorious. There's a a, a bright future that God is preparing for us, and that is the story of, of redemption. It culminates to that great future. But so that we can understand, so that we might have a small glimpse a small taste, a small preview of that grand future, of that grand purpose that God has with our story of redemption, He is giving us a preview of it. And that is Pentecost. God is beginning with Pentecost, the age of the preview, the age of the movie trailer, the age of the food sample, so that we can taste now what's coming in the future. But Pentecost also, and the notion of first fruits also offer us a warning. Because first fruits does does not mean that we have the entire harvest. Down payment does not mean full payment. That means that the Christian life is a walking in this tension of having a glimpse of what we will become and yet not having it in full. Be aware of preachers who tell you that now in Christ you have all you need. Joy, peace, prosperity, health. Everything is yours if you really believe it. False. Even after the Spirit's descent. Look at in the, the rest of the book of Acts. If you were to read the book of Acts. The Jewish Christians still had difficulty understanding God's ways. Even after the Spirit was poured down. Let me give you just two examples. Think how difficult it was for the Jews to accept the fact that God is pouring His Spirit to the Gentiles in the same way. They had to get together and have a council in Acts 15 to determine and figure out that indeed God is calling in the nations. All of that happened after Pentecost. They still had a hard time understanding God's ways even after the Spirit was poured down. Or think for a moment to Peter. Uh, Think for a moment to his experience, his fall into hypocrisy when he publicly was rebuked by Paul for refusing to eat with Gentile Christians while other Jews were present. Two leaders, Peter, being rebuked by Paul. And we have this whole account in the story in the book of Acts. These examples and many others tell us that with the coming of the Spirit, we are experiencing God's first fruits, but they are only God's first fruits, not the full harvest. Now, the best illustration of this concept of first fruits for our personal lives, for our Christian life, was was spent by John Newton. He's the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And here's how John Newton... Captured this tension of first fruits. The joy of first fruits, the blessing of experiencing first fruits, but not the full harvest. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I ought want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Christian Pentecost, dear friends, means that God is presenting to us. He's bringing to us through the Holy Spirit His first fruits. The harvest is His. It is not ours. And once we understand this notion of Pentecost as a presentation of God and His first fruits, we can explore how God unfolded this event. Now, there are three elements in the story. There are three elements in the coming of the Spirit. Three elements were present during the coming of the Spirit. A rushing wind, tongues of fire, and speaking in tongues. Now, each of these make the following major point, each of them. In the giving of the Spirit, God is presenting His first fruits, and the effects of what we see is that God is beginning the restoration of His creation. God is beginning the restoration. Then let's look at at these these, these three manifestations of the way the Spirit came down to us. Verse 2, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, in the Old Testament, the wind was often associated with the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, especially, there are many places in the Old Testament, but I'd like to point you in two directions. First of all, in in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, I encourage you, go home and read this this passage. It's fabulous. But in Ezekiel 37, the wind is a manifestation of the power of the Word of God that the prophet speaks to bring life into the dry bones. In the account of Ezekiel 37, two elements play a key role. First of all, the Ezekiel, the prophet, is commanded to speak to the dry bones, the Word of God. And as a result of him speaking the Word of God to these dry bones, he starts seeing a picture of a wind that's coming. And he's hearing that, the, the, the noise of the wind, the rushing wind, and the wind is bring, bringing life to these bones. It is this combination of the Spirit, of the wind, and the Word that that is bringing life into these dry bones. And by that, God is giving a picture that He is restoring the people of Israel, that He is restoring His people. Now, this imagery of Word and Spirit actually goes back to Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness of waters, and God began speaking His Word and creation came into the being. On Pentecost, dear friends, we have this combination. Wind and languages are connected once again in a powerful combination. And the significance of these symbols uh, acting together again is absolutely uh, powerful and should bring in us, should fill us with a sense of awe. Because at Pentecost, God is involved in ushering in the era of creating new life. At Pentecost, God is beginning the restoration of His people. He is beginning His new creation. What evidence do we have for that? The manifestation of Pentecost is the wind and the speaking, but the results of Pentecost is that once the word is uttered, look at the p- response of people in verse 37. We have not read this verse before, but verse 37, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people responded to God's work of bringing about new creation. And the result of Pentecost is not the wind, it's not the fire, it's not the speaking in tongues. The result is the life which the Spirit of God brought to these 3,000 men as a result of them hearing the proclamation about Christ. God through His Spirit, began the work of restoration. He began the era of new creation. But What about the f- tongues of fire? Brooke explained to the children, can you imagine these men really like, a, like, like candles with a little flame over their head? What about the tongues of fire? Why that? We might understand the Spirit as the wind, but why the tongues of fire? Well, at a very basic level, it is because John the Baptist foretold that Jesus would baptize people with spirit and with fire. So at a very basic level, why the tongues of fire? Children, why the tongues of fire? Because it was foretold that Jesus would baptize people with the spirit and with fire. And the tongues of fire symbolized the the fire. Now, when we think about the story of of redemption and the way God began manifesting himself to the people of Israel, I want us to think about the time, the first time the people of Israel get out of slavery, get out of of Egypt, and finally make it to Sinai. And God begins to manifest himself to them. And he begins manifesting himself on Mount Sinai by thunder, by, by huge noises, and by fire. And it was a picture, remember Mount Sinai, it was a picture so frightening, the people thought God would destroy them, and they told Moses they would rather not hear from God, but hear from Moses. And it was a reaction the people of God had against hearing the direct word of God. Because the notion of fire, when it's used in combination for the manifestation of God, always had this very frightening picture. It was a picture of destruction. It was a picture of purification. And in the story of Old Testament of Israel, when they have experienced the fire of God, it led them to fear. It led them to fear of being destructed. And worse, it led them to rather hear the words of Moses than hear the words from God himself. But now, at Pentecost fire shows up again. And this time it is no longer, a, it is no longer uh, the frightening experience because now there are tongues of fire. Now at, at Pentecost, the tongues of fire are a symbol that God has come once again to be with us. But now the manifestation of the fire is no longer frightening or destructive. And rather than refusing to hear the Word of God on Pentecost, proclamation is now empowered from on high why is it different now what's different now at pentecost than at mount sinai here's the reason why because finally the destructive force of the fire that was disp- that god displayed against all sin was displayed in christ pentecost comes after calvary god's destructive force against all sin against all chaff was displayed in Christ. So now on Pentecost, the baptism which Christ performs on His disciples is a gracious baptism. It's not a destructive baptism. It's a baptism that declares us accepted before God. And the reason why Jesus can baptize His disciples now with the Spirit and with fire and still not destroy them is because Jesus has taken the destruction upon Himself so that all who believe in his name shall not perish but a day will come when all those who have refused to trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus will be destroyed by the judgment of fire and this is why peter at the end of the sermon even as as, as he finished the sermon by the way that's a great passage for any preacher he kept on talking he kept talking, verse 14, in chapter 2, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. You see, friends, Pentecost is an event in when God is bring, beginning His restoration. He has poured down the Spirit to begin restoring His people, to bring life to the lifeless, to bring boldness instead of fear, and to reverse Israel's refusal to hear God's Word By now empowering these disciples to proclaim Christ and empower them from on high. The wind, the the fire, and the speaking of God's word are now present in one picture. Because God is beginning the restoration. Friend, Pentecost means that God is bringing down his spirit as his first fruits. And because of that, he's beginning his restoration. He's beginning a new creation. He's beginning a total restoration. We were dead, and with the coming of Pentecost, life is spoken to us. Let me ask you this Have you experienced this restoration? Have you experienced in your life God's new creation? Pentecost is crucial because it is the moment in history when God says, I am beginning the era of the first fruits through the work of the Spirit. Have you experienced it? If you're here as a friend but have never experienced a new reality in your life, a reality that is foreign and different than your natural instincts, a reality that is foreign to the habits with which you are accustomed to. If you're here this morning and, and, and you have a pretty bored view of life, you're pretty bored about life, you're wondering what this life is all about, I tell you about a Savior that came to give His life for us, for you and for me, so that He would bring to us, to you and to me, a new life, a new creation, a life that is totally different than anything you have ever experienced, because it's a life that comes from a different world. It's a life that comes from above. We receive this new life when we are willing to doubt our old life, when we're actually willing to say no to it, and when we believe in what Christ has done for us. You know, some people today say, you know what, I have a great life. My life is great, and don't try to change it for me. I would not try to change it for anything in the world there. I don't need restoration. I don't need this new life you're talking about. Friend, you may have this impression, but the reality is that you and I live in a world that is decaying. There's more signs and activity of war and conflict in our world than at any time in the history of of humanity. There's more pain. There's more human disasters. There is more stuff happening in our world that gives us a picture that this world is going down. And you might be here this morning, you might be hearing this message and have the impression that you have a great life. But you are on a ship that is slowly sinking, even though you might be, the, might be having the best time on it. But friend, can I be honest with you? Deep down inside of you, I think you have an idea that the ship is sinking. And the spirit of God, Pentecost, is a sign that God has come down through his Holy Spirit to begin the restoration of your life, but also of the entire ship. At Pentecost, God is presenting us his first fruits by sending us the Spirit by sending us, presenting to us the first fruits. He's beginning the restoration. But the greatest preview, the greatest preview that restoration is happening is the third sign, the speaking in tongues. The sign that God is calling back the nations. He's restoring the nations. The calling of the nations is done through a much misunderstood phenomena in the New Testament of speaking in tongues. I am not going to talk about the overall perspective of the New Testament on speaking in tongues. But I'll say this here in Acts 2. Speaking in tongues is not the same phenomena that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians. In Acts 2, what we really have here is speaking in different human languages. And here's why I think this. Here's why I think this is the case. Three times in this passage, we have an emphasis given to the fact that people were hearing the message in their own language. Look at verse 6. Verse 8 and verse 11. But there's another reason. It appears that the speaking in tongues had an accent. Look at verse 7. Are all, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Now, how would they know this? How would they, how would foreign people, how would other Jews who are not from around there know and diagnose or recognize that they were hearing a a Galilean dialect. Let me put it this way to you, very simple. If you're visiting with us this morning, if this is your first time, you may have realized by now that I was not born in Texas. And I didn't have to tell you that. Why? Because of the way of my accent. And it appears that in Acts 2... The speaking in tongues was a speaking that was was modified, was affected by the accent. These men were Galileans. They were speaking a Galilean language, and it was in a Galilean uh, accent, even though they were speaking in different tongues of the earth. Whatever you think, whatever you think about speaking in tongues, as being spiritual, unintelligible, unintelligible speech which requires interpretation. At the very least, in Acts 2 and in the event of Pentecost, there is not a biblical evidence for this view. The emphasis in Acts 2 is actually of these tongues was not to create a barrier of understanding, but to tear down any language barrier so that the hearers might hear about the wonders of God more intelligibly in their own language. So the emphasis of Pentecost is not on speaking in tongues, but on the fact that God is calling back the nations. Look at verses 9 through 11. I'm going to to miss some of you, and I'm risking to to miss some of you as I will be reading these verses, but it's worth the try. Let me do it. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Why three verses of lists of places? Why so many words wasted on names that mean nothing to us? Luke's emphasis is to point out the diversity of nations that hear this message on the day of celebrating the first fruits that God is presenting. Why? Because now the diversity of tongues is no longer an obstacle. At Pentecost, we see a reversal of the Tower of Babel where God used languages to divide up the people into different language groups. In Genesis 11, verse 9, it says that that is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world From there, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. And now at Pentecost, God is bringing the nations to Jerusalem and language differences are no longer a barrier because the Spirit empowers these disciples to speak in languages that the nations can understand. It is a Spirit's work about enabling the people of God who knew one language and in a Galilean accent to now proclaim the wonders of God to the nations of the world. And this is a Spirit's work. It is to bring people who have nothing in common and form one new community. It is a picture of the first fruits of God's ultimate harvest. When in the book of Revelation we see a picture of all the nations gathered around the throne, People of every nation, of every tribe, of every language will be worshiping God together. And now in Pentecost, we see a glimpse of that reality that is coming in the fact that the speaking tongues enables the nations to hear the one message about the wonders of God and hear it intelligibly. You see, friends, God at Pentecost is calling back the nations. But this is not the first time the disciples heard about it. Jesus, right before ascending to the Father, gave them the great commission, Go, make disciples of all nations, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And just ten days later, God is telling these disciples and is giving them a preview that he is indeed calling the nations back and he's serious about calling them back. What this means for us, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, is that the Spirit creates on this day a new community of Jews and Gentiles who at first had nothing in common, yet the gospel of Christ reaches them as well. This means no more nationalistic pride, no more ethnic superiority. God has presented His first fruits in the person of the Spirit, in the work of the Spirit who has begun the act of restoration not simply on an individual basis, but on a basis of a community, on a basis of a national and international exposure. You see, friends, Christianity is not an individual or a nationalistic experience. We're not Christians on our own. We're not Christians as a society, as a nation. Christians means the nation's are coming together in one new community. And the preview of that was Pentecost. What Pentecost means is that God presented His first fruits through the Holy Spirit. He began the work of trans- restoration. And the greatest preview of that is that He's calling back the nations. Pentecost, in one sense, is like a movie trailer. When you see a movie trailer of a really good movie, you can't wait to see the rest of the movie. You get a very short glimpse of what the story is about. You get some very representative scenes and some really good special effects that are geared to raise your appetite to want to go and see the movie. Now, there are people today who go to, to, who go to a movie only to see the special effects and not really get the story of the movie. Likewise, many of us today are inclined to read the events of Pentecost, focusing only on the special effects and miss a larger story that it represents. That's what Pentecost is. It's a glimpse of the grand narrative, of the grand story that God is accomplishing, of the grand climax that God is bringing to us, of His salvation. Yet the details are missing. We don't have many details. Why? Why? Because you and I are still making this movie. We're not only spectators of this movie trailer. We're actually actors in it. And the movie is not yet finished. You can be here today either among those who get it. You get the script. You get the story. You you accept your role. You believe in what you have seen in the movie trailer. Or you can be among those who reject it. You can be among those who dismiss it. You can be among those who find alternative explanations for it. Now They're still part of the movie. They're still part of the story. But for them, the completion of the movie will not be good news. It will not be happy ending because they have chosen to reject the plot of the story, to reject the script. Which one are you? Which one are you? Let me assure you, my friend, that unlike many movies today where the trailer is often more exciting than the movie itself, the full story of God's redemption of man is far beyond what Pentecost described to us. Pentecost is but a glimpse of an entire harvest that God has prepared for us. Are you a part of it? Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit in a miraculous, in a, in a clear historical event. And the ways the Spirit has manifested Himself was to give us a picture, a clear picture, that you are serious about the work of restoration, that you are serious about bringing the nations to yourself, that you are serious about using Israel to bring the nations into one large international community of people who will be from different languages, from different tribes, from different nations, who one day will worship you before the throne of God. Father, we thank you that in the Holy Spirit, in the coming of Pentecost, we have one historical event that we can cling to, that we can look to, that we can treasure, that we can value. Lord, I pray today through your Holy Spirit would you continue to do the work of restoration? Will you pour down your Holy Spirit on us? Will you fill us? Will you empower us to witness? Will you empower us to declare the works of redemption to the nations, to those around us? Father, I pray that you make us a a community, a church that is full of the power of the Holy Spirit to take the story of redemption to the nations and to our neighbors. Father, if there's here somebody this morning who has heard the message of restoration, if there's here somebody who has heard the work that you have done on Pentecost of beginning new creation, that new creation is for them as well. If there's somebody here who would like to respond to that in faith, I pray that you would move their hearts. I pray that you would begin in them the work of restoration, of new creation. In the name of Jesus, I pray.